This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. And you're now tuning in to the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners out there, our podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging their fields and the world around them. Today, we're really excited and honored to welcome um, Maria Cotera, who's in a, a professor in the Department of Women's Studies and the American Cultural Department at the University of Michigan. She's also a legendary Chicano feminist, activist, author, <laughs> researcher, and professor. And we're just really, really amped to have a conversation with her today about her work and the ways in which our, our projects overlap. So as, as we kind of said in the intro, a big way that we, I guess, use this podcast as a tool for our knowledge practice, I guess, is to interview scholars and researchers who are producing scholarship in areas that we find meaningful and related to the work that we're interested in. And your work, especially your um, theoretical and methodological innovations in how to think about grassroots history making and especially the role of digital technologies in that, has something that has been uh, really informative for another project outside of this podcast that we have going on, which is called Documenting the Nameplate, um, which is um, an ongoing open call book project that celebrates nameplate culture, nameplate culture through the testimonies of people who wear this jewelry. Um, and actually, this project started from this podcast. The first episode of this podcast was our first foray into this research topic and trying to understand, or at least craft for ourselves, a, a kind of material history and also cultural history of what nameplate jewelry is and what it means to people. Um, and so mm -hmm. since starting that research on this podcast, the project has kind of expanded into something that we could have never possibly imagined. But throughout the process of trying to figure out, you know, how do we create and document this rich ongoing cultural tradition without um, sort of concretizing our contribution into this like authoritative take on what nameplates mean and also questioning what archives mean as, you know, a tool of use of, of producing knowledge. Your work has been really informative and in helping us you know, still work through our position in doing this project. So I guess a little bit selfishly, we're going to be asking you a lot of questions related <laughs> to our own research and and obviously how it intersects with, with your work. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, as Marcel said, we would love to speak to you about um, your theories and philosophies of archiving and community history making. And part of the reason for that is that we think it's super important to speak openly about these processes and to offer kind of like insights and tips with the hopes that people will start their own projects. Because mm -hmm. I feel like our attitude is sort of another reason why we don't want to necessarily be like an, an authoritative um, final say on like what's what with nameplates is that the more people are doing work like this, the better it is for this knowledge being passed down. So we're we're hoping mm -hmm. to just also like be part of a conversation that makes these mindsets more available. So with that being said, mm -hmm. maybe we can mm -hmm. dive into our first question. Yeah. So to start off, we're super curious to hear you talk more about um, the Chicana por mi raza digital memory collective. If you could mm -hmm. speak to why you and your collaborators decided to embark on this project, what the intentions were, um, and mm -hmm. just basically what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, so first of all, I want to say thank you for having me on and listening to you talk about your project. I'm really resisting the urge of interviewing you <laughs> <laughs> and finding out more about like, you know, why, how you're thinking about things. But, uh, to, to start off, I guess, um, I think it's important uh, that, that this project really emerged out of a sense of deep frustration, that the narratives that were kind of shaping our understanding of, um, at that time, the Chicano movement um, and the women's movement had really kind of exiled women of color and their contributions to theories of intersectionality 
um, and theories of liberation. And, you know, uh, it came out of this sense that, that, you know, when I was trying to teach women's studies or women's history classes or Latinx history classes, there were no secondary resources on Chicanas in particular. Um, and, you know, I knew that there was a history there because my mother was a Chicana feminist. And in fact, by 1976, she had already, she had published the first, um, historical account of Chicanas in the United States called Dios Ayembra, which is considered, you know, and uh, again, self-printed, self-published, you know, um, not published by Random House or any big academic press, right? And, and distributed at conferences and a lot like, you know, how we think of zines, really, the, the sort of print culture of that time was really kind of um, really distributed through circles at uh, conferences and workshops and seminars and that kind of thing. Um, and in 77, she published the uh, collection of essays called The Chicana Feminist, right? So here we have, you know, a good four years before this bridge called my back, you know, these things being published. And, you know, another 10 years before that, I knew from looking at her collection that there were small, you know, newsletters, newspapers, journals, like there was this incredible wealth, archival wealth that had simply not been absorbed by the academy and therefore was kind of falling into a memory hole so that we were getting the impression that intersectionality kind of emerged out of the forehead of Kimberly Crenshaw. Now, I think she's brilliant. And I would, you know, I, it's not that I'm, I'm sort of, you know, uh, challenging, right, her significance in, um, in developing that theory, but even she in that, in her essay, Mapping the Margins, is really talking about a generate, you know, 10 years before the kind of work that women in uh, the Kambahi River Collective and other women were doing in the 1960s and 70s, right? So there was this wealth of information, but it was not being preserved. It was not being collected. Um, and therefore, it was not the subject of articles and books. And so, the other concern of that, you know, of course, because I, I, I witnessed this archive myself, I witnessed its development and creation in my mother's office, you know, that women of this generation were in their 70s, and in some cases in their 80s. And, uh, you know, my mother's collection was any indicator, you know, we had a kind of, um, you know, a massive archive that was distributed in women's garages and basements and, you know, attics and bedrooms and offices. And so, you know, the thought of this archive, you know, passing into um, obscurity and even possibly getting thrown away as women pass was just, you know, it became very urgent um, to, to sort of um, figure out a way to, to recover it, to preserve it, to share it. Um, another part of the genesis of the project is that, you know, I had just come out of writing a book that was really archivally based um, about the early 20th century. And so I had spent a lot of time about women of color in the early 20th century. And I'd spent a lot of time in archives. And, you know, writing a book, a scholarly book is super isolating experience. Um, I felt uh, really conflicted about the individualist ethos of the scholarly world and its publication and knowledge production models. I felt super, you know, you know, it creates like with these people who might be your collaborators, it creates this sense of competitiveness. Like if you're working in the same field, you know, you don't want them to scoop you. You want the next big idea. You know, that's how the academic racket works. Right. And so I was like, I really did not want to do a project that would replicate those politics and that mode of knowledge production. And then I would say the final genesis was that uh, a, a friend of mine, the collaborator, the major collaborator on this project, Linda Garcia Merchant, who's an Afro-Chicana filmmaker um, living in Chicago at the time, had just made a film um, on her mother and her circle, which included my mother. And, you know, it was a film on Chicanas who were involved in the National Women's Political Caucus in the 19, early 1970s and helped craft a platform on women in the U.S. at major conferences with other uh, National Women's Political Caucus members. And that film, which is wonderful, uh, called um, the, the Chicana Caucus, 
I can't remember. I can't believe I'm, I'm blanking on the name. It's the Mujeres of the Chicana Caucus. You know, that took her like 10 years to make. And so we were both like, what can we do that is not going to take another decade? Because we do not have time, you know, that will spur interest in this hidden archive and, and will spur interest in, in this part of history that's just not being recovered or written about. And so that's when we decided to sort of combine her skills with filmmaking and my skills as an archival researcher and, you know, uh, oral historian to um, do the project, which, if that, you know, we started off with like four interviews um, with women in Texas and my mother's circle and spent a good deal of time in my mother's archive, home archive. And that's when we realized, you know, we, it really hit us that probably you know, as as we continued with the project, which began as an oral history project, we would encounter many more archives like my mother's. And so how could we document these archives and how could we, you know, share them with the public? And that is when we really kind of launched the project as a dual sort of oral history and archive project. And I, I should also say that, you know, in that first trip, we we we've always had to rely on student labor because we don't have any money, right? We don't have any major grants. We're kind of just like, uh, kind of not by the seat of our pants. We're very organized, but it's just like we use, we mobilize the resources that we have at our disposal, which are university resources. And those include very energetic students. And so when we went to Austin, we took, um, a couple of students with us. And one of the things that really dawned on us was that, listening to these stories and, and, you know, the students engagement with the archive, uh, something was really, pro, pro, really profound was happening. You know, the students were really impacted. Um, and it wasn't just the sort of on the ground research experience. There was something about this sort of um, deep dive into the past and into this, you know, residue of the past and also mediated through the memory of the women who had collected these items uh, that was that was beyond the scope of the project. It was like something unexpected. Um, our students reacted, you know, on the one hand with anger, and this reaction is typical, right? It continues to this day. On the one hand with anger that they didn't know anything about this, that there was this, you know, when you're confronted with a massive archive in someone's home, this whole hidden history that you have never heard of before or never seen, and it's like a reflection of your history back at you. You know, um, the reaction is sort of frustration and anger that you didn't know about it, but also a kind of um, uh, a realization of the radical potential inside of you, you know, because you're seeing these, you know, basically the residue of young women your age doing these amazing things. And you're like, wow, you know, I didn't even know this was possible and I didn't know it happened and why didn't I know? And, you know, so that first trip, I often recall, you know, the two students that, that we went with, they they were working so hard and I felt so guilty because I was in Austin, my hometown, and like partying basically at six <laughs> o'clock. I'm out. I'm out. I'm like, you guys are in Austin. And finally, the last night I like insisted, I was like, you guys, you have to go out. This, there's great food here. Just go somewhere, take the rental car and go have fun. And they did, you know, every night before then, they would be up to like 2 a.m. Just looking at stuff, looking at old newspapers, looking at old chapbooks and poetry. And, you know, and that final night, I was like, no more late nights working. And they came back at like 2 a.m. with tattoos. <laughs> that were pulled from the archive, right? So wow. they had literally taken images from the archive and permanently um, inscribed them on their bodies. And like this moment, I, I was just, you know, it struck me that I, I this work was more than just collecting work. It was more than just, you know, preservation work. It was really uh, experiential work. Like the most important part of it was witness, a sense of critical witness and listening and um, a kind of walking hand in hand with someone into a, a past that's being recounted and, you know, kind of energizing the present and 
moving you into this future, you know? So that first uh, trip was really profound, as have all the trips that we've taken with students uh, been. How long has the project been going on? So we started, I think that was 2009. Oh, wow. So literally, I published my book in 2008, and I was like, I'm doing something totally different. And in <laughs> 2009, I started safe. You know, I asked my mom to gather her friends, and she was very active in um radical third-party politics in Texas in the 1970s. She did a lot of political development with Chicanas. Um, in, and she and others in a party called the Rasunida Party, which was a radical third party that arose in the early 1970s, um, really pushed a lot of women into, you know, radical political engagement. Um, and so, you know, we had access to her friends um, and so those are the first women we interviewed. But then after that, we kind of mobilized that network. And, you know, we went on to do interviews in California, Chicago, um, and through various partner projects uh, in Wisconsin, New Mexico, uh, you know, uh, Houston, I mean, everywhere, you know, pretty much. So not everywhere, but across the Southwest and Midwest. And then through classes that I've taught, actually, I sort of structured classes around our process. And I've taught oral history classes here in Michigan and collected oral histories in Michigan and then use that as a model to, you know, encourage uh, others to teach classes, to collect materials and to upload them into our platform. So we build the archive kind of through controlled crowdsourcing. Yeah, I mean, controlled I feel like, crowd, I like that control process is exactly <laughs> what we're doing, too. I mean, a lot of what you're saying is actually very relatable because Marcel and I just went on our first trip for our project oh. up last month. Yeah, we went to Houston and to L.A. And oh, it wow. was like I, I, I really know what you mean about it, have it bringing this whole like unexpected emotional experiential element. I mean, we've hosted a lot of events in New York, but like actually going somewhere totally new like I feel like multiple days on the trip, I was like, "Was this the best day ever?" <laughs> like there, it was just so much. <laughs> it was just so yeah, much surprise and like feeling like you have a a really new perspective on like a lot of things, including yourself after just one day of having conversations. So yeah, that's a very relatable point. But um, mm -hmm. we also wanted to ask, sort of building on a, a little bit of the of the theoretical backing to the type of work that you're doing, like your scholarship and activism really directly question the politics of knowledge production and critique the power relations that tend to shape who gets to make history. Like that's the question. Like it's, I mean, it's the same thing that you say, like when you encounter a bunch of knowledge that relates to you, but you had no way of knowing about, and you're like, why that's yeah. that, that frustration. And You've described um, Chicana Por Mi Raza as a form of grassroots history creation. And we're wondering, like, what does what does grassroots history creation actually mean to you? And um, maybe like also what I mean, obviously, your mother was a huge part in you embarking mm -hmm. on this. But w what other inspirations led you down this path? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've talked a lot about how um archives and how we produce knowledge, especially historical knowledge, creates a kind of feedback loop, right? So if, if books aren't written about women, then you can't make the argument as a librarian or an archivist to acquire materials on women. But if materials on women are not in your archive, then books are not going to be written on women because that's where historians go, right? To the library, to the archive, the institutional archive, to gather their evidence, you know? And so I, I think we all realized, uh, uh, Linda Garcia Merchant and I in particular realized pretty early on that we would have to um, collect this archive on the ground. One of the things like that, uh, that's really important for our practice, our archival practice, is um, the relationships that we develop with women um, and the fact that we do not remove archives from anyone's home, right? So when we go, we take scanners and we use iPhone scanners and, you know, iPad scanners and we take in a crew and we scan what we can. Um, we are guided by what the women think is most important and relevant to their story. Um, and there is some scoping 
right? But it's it's a kind of dialogic process. Like we interview women and then a lot of times they will bring out materials that are illustrating in a way the story they're telling, right? And so those, we use their guidance to kind of direct us to the materials that we can scan. Um, and like I said, we never, there's a certain politics to, to archival uh, processing. So we never move, remove archives from their location, partially because a lot of women have lost a lot of materials, lending them to scholars. They're very mistrustful of scholars, you know, and so we want to make sure that those kinds of situations don't happen. But also because th these archival objects are not just in storage, like women are using them. They're like, they're active sites, right? And so we want to respect that. And also a lot of women feel that like, even if they did donate their materials to a library, then the community would not have access to them. And that question of access is so important to them. So when we walk them through and show them the interface and the platform and the website and show them that that history that they're sharing with us will be active, you know, and used by others, they get really excited about that. Um, I think also the collaborations that we have that are transgenerational are very meaningful to women. So, you know, we, we always go with students, almost always. And I think that really changes the dynamics when we're doing oral history and archival work, because they're really seeing this, the elders uh, who I call veteranas, right, are seeing um, this transgenerational kind of um, knowledge production that I think is is meaningful to them. Like one thing is to share it with, you know, two middle-aged women. Another thing is to have students and younger generation there, you know, really taking it in and being so impacted. So I think those are all the sort of methodology and politics of um, how we collect oral histories and archives. Um, but I think, you know, the inspiration for me or what has really catalyzed the project and made me think much more deeply about the politics of knowledge production in the project is, uh, it's not a paradox, but it's just, you know, um, the materials that we're collecting have taught us something about how women worked together in the 1970s that we did not know before, really in a deep way. And, and you know, when we start talking about the project, a lot of the women we talk about it too will say, well, this is how we did things. We had publishing collectives and we knew we weren't being represented in the, you know, Chicano studies curriculum or women's studies curriculum. So we got together, you know, and would print a journal that we created so that they would have something to teach or we would have something to teach in the classroom, right? So in the face of total absence and neglect and marginalization, they worked collaboratively to create a field of knowledge right, that then they could later share and distribute. Um, and so I think there, there are ways in which that collaborative ethos and that, you know, um, sharing of knowledge that is so emblematic of that, of what women were doing in that period um, has really shaped our project. So we didn't start off, you know, thinking about things in a sophisticated or in, in such an elaborated way, but the archive itself kind of, um, it, it transformed us, you know, in interesting ways, the process of collecting it, but also the knowledges it contained, you know, so that, that has been really profound. So I always think of the project as a kind of reflection of the knowledge practice of an earlier generation. And so on the one hand, we're kind of reviving it, you know, and deploying it for this moment. On the other hand, it is actively informing and shaping how we are approaching the project. Yeah, I mean, I guess just building on this whole idea, you have um, I, this really profound concept of the encounter when it comes to archiving and the whole like research practice of it that I think really clicked for me and Isabel because the events that we do in addition to the, I guess, these online encounters that we have on Instagram DM and like mm -hmm. people who email yeah. us, I guess those could, those could be considered a different type of encounter. But yes. we do have these like in-person events where 
people take the time out of their day. Like we do not take that for granted. Like people take time out of their life to come and be part of this collective like memory making process. And I just want to quote you from um, a video on YouTube that we have transcribed parts oh, wow. of that you're on <laughs> because we're also nerds. And you you describe uh, this encuentro as it is in the intimate spaces of memory exchange where the present and the past meet and that the sense of building knowledge together is most profoundly activated. Did I transcribe that? Correctly? Yes, Did yes. I make sense? So we we're wondering, <laughs> I was like, oh. we we're wondering if you could describe uh, a bit more about what this encounter means and perhaps maybe even grounded in a specific, like memorable example from the research. Like, is there an encounter or a story within this long-term process that really, really resonates or sticks out to you that you want to share? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, I mean, I we really, uh, but I think, um, I'm, I'm thinking recently I took two summer interns, uh, to Wisconsin and, um, and they were from like, one is studying at Barnard and the other one is from California. They're both from California, but they're kind of opposite sides of the country. And, you know, I, I did not know them. Like they were my summer interns and I'm like, guess what? We're going to Wisconsin. And we went to interview some women who are involved in an organization, um, uh, uh, the Latina Task Force um, in the early 80s, late 70s. And so we spent um, we spent time with the women, but we didn't just so so we interviewed the women and we were scanning their materials. But we also, you know, had dinner with them and spent full evenings you know, um, and, and in those, it, it was really sort of in those moments when like, um, you know, uh, one of the women that we had dinner with, she's like giving advice on, on politics and on surviving school and, you know, all of these things that, that these conversations that are happening, you know, with these young women that are really profound. So as profound as the knowledge you know, that emerges in the oral histories and in the dialogue between the oral histories and the archives that they lend us to, to scan, you know, beyond all that, the stuff that doesn't make it into whatever book or article you're going to write or whatever, the stuff that's like the excess of all that, right? Those encounters like outside of the margins of the oral history scene, you know, those are the moments in which we kind of get a much more profound sense of, uh, the, you know, just this sort of exchange of knowledge that happens between, you know, a younger generation, our generation and this older generation. I mean, there's so, there's so many moments in which the students come away with uh, such a, and we as well, a much deeper sense of the history because the history is not just what happened in the past, right? And what I'm trying to like understand with Encounter is that these individuals that we interview, right, they're, they're not just sort of uh, a static repository or like their stories aren't just like contained um, before 1980, right? When we're having dinner with them, they're talking about Trump. They're talking about, you know, anti-immigrant sentiments. They're still politically active in many cases. So we're talking about contemporary politics with our students. Um, you know, over the dinner table. And I think it just helps students understand that, you know, the, the past is never past, as Tennessee Williams, is it Tennessee Williams, I guess, has said, right? I mean, it's the past inhabits the present. It's informing the present. And it's actually, you know, shaping the future. So I think it really moves us out of a space of like, you know, preserving, recording, you know, ar archiving to a space of, um, uh, a, a, you know, a time space in which history is animating the present, you know? So I, I don't know. I mean, for me, encounter really means like, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like uh, fleshing the archive, like what it means to, you know, have these engagements that, that refuse to keep the past on the other side of a barricade from the present, right? And recently, I'll just say, 
this is not a oral history situation, but you know, I maintain relationships with most of these people and um, I'm working on a book right now uh, about the project. And um, uh, I shared my timeline with one of the women whose uh, archive is in the book, Ananieto Gomez. And I had created a timeline based on a timeline she had, a timeline my mom had created in the 70s, and then my own timeline. And so I shared it with her uh, in a Google Doc, just, you know, because she's working on a book too. And she started changing my timeline. And so I was like, <laughs> wow, this is so interesting because when you're a historian, usually your subjects stay in their place, you know? <laughs> right, they, they don't, don't speak really back, change. right? <laughs> no, they don't change your timeline. And I was just thinking like, wow, you know, she's adding comments and putting in bullet points. And I'm like, you know, this is Encuentro too. It's like, you know, it's it's a situation in which the subject and object duality of our scholarship refuses to, to be maintained, mm. right? Wow, love that idea. Ooh. I mean, you know. I think that's, I think yeah. we, I think Isabel and I have, we're continue to sort of grapple with these very same questions, especially in relation mm -hmm. to the, the term archive and our relationship to mm -hmm. it with, you know, you know, the, I wouldn't even say like the residues or the ongoing resonances mm -hmm. um, that archives you know, have played in enacting colonial epistemologies of exploitation and extraction, like a lot of the, t the points that you've already brought up. And, you know, at times we've called our nameplate project like an archival type of project. And other times we sort of like tried to dance around it. Um, and in our way of trying to figure out our what our relationship to the archive is and our position as editors in this process, on the one hand, mm -hmm. trying to create like an open ended ongoing research project. But on the other hand, knowing that we are creating a container of knowledge, even if we try to yeah. sort of theorize our book. way out of it like, in a book, a, book. Yeah. a material thing. So I guess we yeah. would love to hear more of your take. And, and as I said, like you've, you've talked about this throughout, but I guess personally for you, yeah. how do you engage with these, um, these dynamics of what the archive is and what it, what it can yeah. mean? I, I do think, you know, uh, I think the first time I wrote about this, and it has a it's related to this idea of encuentro, right? So when we think of the archive as an encuentro, as an active space of exchange and dialogue, and not uh, we tend to think of the archive rather in kind of um, architectural ways, you know, or ways in which like you know we tend to think of it as a repository or a space where you collect things and then put them and organize them, right? And then you're right, it's an extractive model where not, you know, scholars come in and then use those things that you've collected, you know, and make knowledge from them. Not as, you know, knowledge spaces or in and of themselves, right, or spaces that are producing knowledge in and of themselves. It always requires the hand of the authorized uh, scholar to come in, right, and make make sense or organize these raw materials into knowledge. And I think the archive as Encuentro really pushes back against that in, in that it's sort of, we're trying to think of the archive itself as a knowledge making and dialogic space, right? Knowledge is being produced, right? It's not just like a space where you can come and extract your evidence. Um, and so uh, that, uh, so I was thinking of this because I'm writing a book and I know you guys um, in your question, you kind of point to this, like what I resisted writing a book for a long time because I felt like, you know, that kind of instantiates a relationship, an extractive relationship to the materials in the archive, you know, that writing a book based on this archive kind of creates a sense that, you know, it is this static thing. And I'm going to tell the story of Chicana feminism with the evidence of this archive, which is really uh, contravenes the, the principles of the project. So it's been a real, uh, uh, it's been a difficult thing to square for me, but my university does require that of me. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the tenure, <laughs> the practicality. Right, well, so I have tenure, but oh, to get sweet. Uh, promoted, I mean, there is absolutely, you know, the, 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 the university is still operating in this sort of, uh, I don't know, scholarship 1.0 way, right? It, it can only be elaborated through books. And moreover, there are gendered relationships that are implicit in the archive that are very problematic. So, for example, you know, um, the people who collect and organize archives are not the knowledge makers. 
the knowledge makers are the people who come in and make sense of the evidence in the archive, right? And there is a gender division of labor implied there because most librarians and archivists are women, right? Mm. And and so there is a there's a kind of power relation there, and also a division between you know theory, uh, sort of theory making, and then the practicalities of collecting, right? So that they're divided. You know, the real people, the real scholars come in after you've collected and organized all this and make sense of it for you. Right. So all of those things are wrapped up. All those politics are wrapped up in in, um, traditional archival relations. And it's one of the reasons why we, you know, when when as the project progressed, we we have a position that if if folks want to use the materials in our archive, which is the largest Chicana feminist archive in the world, also the only one that I know of, but still, um, you know, they, this is not, they cannot have an extractive relationship to it. So they join our collective. And by doing so, they must propose a project that furthers, you know, the knowledge in the archive. So if that's tagging or adding metadata or using their expertise to help us interpret objects, but we are not interested in scholars coming in and saying, I want to do research on this topic and just using our archive to go publish their book or article. We will support those efforts, but we also want to see a, a responsibility to further the archive and to, to engage, you know, in, in its development. Um, so I think, you know, the question of the book, I think that, what happens when you publish a book, and this happened with Chicana Movidas, this recent anthology that we published, uh, co-edited by Maylee Blackwell and Dion Espinoza, um, you become, right, in the academic uh, in the academic sphere, you become the experts, right? You you publish the book, it got published to the scholarly press, it circulates, it's taught in classes, you get invited to do talks, you know. And this is a gross misrepresentation of the project, right? And uh, the book, so Chicana Movidas is not just about Chicana Movidasa, but it's still something that really, um, you know, concerns me about the prospect of writing a book about this project, because then, you know, the the people in the archive, the, the stories, the active site of Encuentro, all of that is kind of collapsed, right, into a academic knowledge product and you then become the expert on Chicana feminism in the 70s which is totally for me against what we're doing you know so this has been a real uh it's it's been dicey to think about and you know the only thing I can say is that the book that I write about the project will have to always you know center or decenter my authority um, if that's even possible, and you know, sort of refuse refuse to present history as a sort of seamless narrative, right? And kind of point to those messy places where you know um, I don't have authority over the text. So I think you know the only way I can write this book is as a self-reflexive, almost like an autoethnography. You know, here's the project. Here's some things I you know, I found interesting in the archive, um, but not a kind of authoritative, seamless account of Chicana feminism in the 70s. Not to mention that, you know, there's 10,000 items in the archive, hundreds of oral histories, like narrowing that, like, you know, massive collection into some kind of narrative is always going to leave, you know, more out than it includes. So I don't know. So I think the problem of authorship and uh, scholarship using the archive is in many ways, you know, it, it continues to to be a challenge for me. And I, I don't know, you guys said you might be writing a book or working on a book. Yeah. So the book is primarily photography. We, we've I mean, is what you could speak to this, too. We've decided just to limit um, the writing to like a forward and then have the the stories and the photos do be the main part of that like encounter but yeah because i mean the way that our process works i mean obviously 
our scope is a little more narrow because we're dealing with these objects, the nameplate, as opposed to like, I'm sure in many cases you're talking to someone about probably their entire life's work. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's a little more contained. Um, but, you know, w- what we ask of people either on the Internet or in person at our events is that they tell us something about their nameplate, whether it's like when they got it, why they got it, what their associations are, just anything, whatever their thoughts yeah. about it are. So then we're going to be presenting alongside the images that are either taken at our events or submitted on the Internet that story that that person wrote. So hopefully, like, this is our idea, too, is that, I mean, I feel like we've struggled. I don't even like using the word archive to describe what we're doing. But if anything, we use it out of convenience because it's the best term to communicate to someone else what we're doing and have Mm -hmm. them actually, like, understand it. I would, Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like in a way it's more like a constellation of subjective experiences Mm -hmm. Um, especially because we are actually not even really able to create things like timelines because there is so little yeah. history. Like, so we're really limited in our ability to even, you know, produce any sort of definitive knowledge period about it. And and I think the autoethnography has also been really useful for us because obviously we're involved in this project because we have nameplates and love them. So in a way, we're exact. We are one of the people contributing with a story as well. So we're like on this very even playing field. But anyhow, um, sort of moving into our our next question. um, I mean, I'd say and Marcel, obviously, feel free to jump in. Like I have really... um, just treasured the like in-person interactions that we've had at our events because I mean also as I said it's a much shorter conversation but like each person who comes you know we chat with them we get to know them a little bit we talk about their nameplate they write it down they get their picture taken and so we do have this this physical like crystallization but then there's this other part of the project where people do submit via a google form via email and via instagram so that's a different kind of dynamic because it is this like nameless person in the you know, in the multiverse of the internet. But it is yeah. interesting because social media has spurred like this exciting boom and like open call grassroots uh, grassroots digital history projects, especially on Instagram as it lends itself to this like messaging a stranger type of um, of system within this network that's sort of pre-created. So, you know, among these, which I'm sure that you that you know of is Guadalupe Rosales's and map points, the party archive, and then the mm-hmm. London-based project Black in the Day. Also, Albie Squared 87 is a page dedicated to New York City hip-hop culture, and we actually interviewed Professor Q, the man who runs it, who had, like, amazing perspectives on this type of work mm-hmm. also. And then there's all—and in addition, there's more recently— um, Nuevo Yorkinos, which is a collection mm-hmm. of New York Latinx history. So these are just like a couple. I'm sure there's a ton more that we don't even know about. But mm-hmm. wondering, like, what, if any, are your thoughts on the role of social media and this kind of, you know, alternate history making? Can you imagine, yeah. like, social media also transforming, like, some of the limitations of scholarship in the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a pretty interesting question. I was recently talking to someone at the Ford Foundation about, you know, sort of community and grassroots archives. And one of the things that I think is uh, so interesting is the rise of Instagram archives, but also like, you know, um, you know, Facebook throwback Thursdays. You know, there's the there. So there's a way in which historians are like uh, dreading the internet age, because, you know, you have to think if you've been in an archive and you see all those handwritten or typed letters, you know, you do think about email with dread, right? Because you're like, how does it get archived? Like so much knowledge is made from the ephemera, the print ephemera that we create, you know, that residue in our lives. And that's what fills most archives. And when you're looking at, you know, the digital age and how most of that happens online, um, you do get a little worried, you know, like, where is it going? On the other hand, I feel like we're in a golden age of archives and we can change the name, but like that self archiving is actually, it, it's so interesting that these tools have encouraged people to do these projects, some of which are crowdsourced, some of which are managed relatively um, more or less. I'm thinking of another ar- archive black and brown, uh, that documents black and brown uh, East Austin you know, which is uh, a began, it's an Instagram archive that really began as a kind of, I feel in response to the profound gentrification 
in that city and, and how East Austin is changing, right? It's getting so gentrified and that history is being lost. And it's very similar to Veteranas y Rucas, you know, in that the guy who runs that um, Instagram uh, site, he, you know, he accepts uh, material from people he collects. It's a really combination, you know, he's doing some really um, kind of archiving of his own, going to places and collecting images and photos, but also people are sending him stuff all the time. So he's managing this archive that is really the only, um, I would say, uh, not the only, but definitely a major source of community memory, right, on the internet. And like all of these other sites, uh, New York Kinos is the same way. You know, it's really, um, it's really a kind of uh, place where people can die, people who are imperiled of being held from, their home space, I think in particular, you know, are documenting their lives over time. Um, I think the biggest question for me is, you know, what infrastructures we create in this moment of extreme digitization, you know, what infrastructures that we create um, to support and preserve these um, memory gestures, you know, because honestly, uh, you know, as much as I, I think we're kind of in a golden age of archiving, I, I do worry that, you know, uh, companies like Instagram, like these are all part of the massive uh, capital capitalist system, right? They're corporations. They are not, they're not, you know, libraries. They're not, they're, they're not institutions like based on supporting the public good. You know, <laughs> they are money making corporations. And so, I feel like um, I was talking to someone in the Ford Foundation. I was like, the most important thing we need is a massive server and a platform that's universal that we can, um, that community-based archives can really use as a kind of mothership. Like that's, we refer to our platform and our archive, the, not the website, right? Because the website is sort of for public presentation. It's very much a curational site, but we have high resolution images and oral history narratives in um, a login protected site that's on a platform that's on a U of M server, right? So it is a stable um, place where we can store high resolution images that are archival quality. What I would love to see is for all these sites to have one place that is supported, right, by, by public funding to ensure that those digital materials that they're collecting are preserved, you know? Because Instagram, you know, it is not, I mean, as useful as it is in terms of sharing with the public, it is not um, that useful for, you know, really kind of preserving digital artifacts in the ways that they do need to be preserved. That's yeah. such an important point, True. because I feel like oftentimes, even in the way that I talk about, you know, the role of social media and kind of enlivening this new age of research and, you know, empowering people perhaps outside of the traditional academic institutions to pursue this type of archival work. Like even the way I talk about it has a sort of technocratic, like, and the technology is going to save us and, and, and make things available. But thank you for bringing me down to earth and realizing that Facebook owns currently yes, like our, all of our images. Yeah, and even like logistically, I feel like, Something that we that I've been thinking about and that I've dealt with in the past because I, I work at magazines for my job is like images submitted or posted on Instagram are not high res. So like even yeah. if you want to make something into print, yeah. even that is hard. Like it's not like you can download it or something like you literally have to take a screenshot. And so that itself makes it sort of like a closed system where these things can only circulate within Instagram and then right. taking them out into something else is That's quite a challenging. Other yeah. level. Right. I mean, we've scanned, like we discovered, uh, we actually did an exhibit not that long ago of a Chicano photographer from Chicago who had this massive collection of slides and photographs from the civil rights, from like the seventies in Chicago. Amazing historic stuff. No one had ever seen it or very few people. And we scanned slides at, you know, 2000, uh, DPI. So it's, it's a high resolution, not the super highest, but it's high. And so we were able to, when we did an exhibit with her in partnership with her, and it was you, when you were talking about the nameplate project, it was reminding me of this exhibit because we asked her to write the 
the plates were like the explanatory material to reflect on the photos and and to to basically explain them, right? But we were able to to you know blow up slides to you know three by five foot images, wow. right? If if those slides were you know just like in the regular what is it ninety eight DPI or whatever it is you know now I'm getting into the weeds and super nerdy but you know you can't do that right and so for us what's been really important is to have like when I call it the mothership I mean it's like it's our arc literally like it those are high resolution images and documents that we can do a million things with. Like at that point, you know, we can put up a show in a community, which we have done. We put up over in an abandoned house in Detroit, right? We can make a film. We can, you know, uh, make a poster. We can do all kinds of stuff, you know, with those with those materials. Um, and on our website, we have low resolution materials to preserve the integrity of the archive and to make sure that folks don't use it in a way that the women would not be okay with, right? So that's part of our. Um, part of our relationship with the the women who've donated to the archive. So, I mean, for me, I think it's like, what I would love to see is Veteranas y Rucas and all of these projects to have, for me, it's like an infrastructure gap. Like people talk about the technology gap or whatever. I think these grassroots archives are experiencing a profound infrastructure gap that, you know, they don't have access to platforms that are super sophisticated that are not commercialized or monetized, right? You know, open source stuff like our platform, um, server space, right? The kind of server space you need to, to manage large archival collections, right? These are infrastructure problems that uh, nobody is addressing. None of the, you know, the Ford Foundation, Mellon, ACLS, because you will not get grants from them unless you're associated with a major library or repository. So it's extremely difficult if you're a grassroots archive. And even we qualify as that because we are not associated with the library. You know, we use institutional resources, but we are not under the aegis of a library. So it's extremely difficult to get funding to to have those sustainable kind of um, preservation, you know, uh, uh, infrastructures. So that is a super nerdy part of my thing, but I mean, you're no, you're, that's you're speaking to two self-identified like... nerds, so it's all <laughs> welcomed. I I mean, I guess just just to wrap up, I'm I feel like I've just learned so much from you um, during this time. We were actually we have this talk that we give about the project, and we we uh, gave this lecture at um, Arlene Davila's undergraduate race and media class yesterday, which was awesome to see this like young, I, can't, I guess we're not part of that generation anymore, yeah, Isabel. Like these young people. <laughs> we're yeah. like, uh, they're not our peers. Um, but to see these undergrads really um, excited and interested in wanting to embark on these types of grassroots, grassroots history projects and... We told them that we were going to be speaking with you and asking you <laughs> the next day. They were yeah. asking us all these questions about. So, like, how do we do this? And we, of course, shared from our personal experience, like what we've been doing. But I guessed what and I know you're teaching this in your undergraduate classes, too. So perhaps you can bring some of those insights to us for the last question and, and kind of reflect on any um, tips or advice that you have mm-hmm. for for individuals or smaller collectives who are seeking to do this type of work, whether it be practical advice, your Mm -hmm. top favorite resources to point to someone who wants to kind of just start exploring this type of research project. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be super boring, but it's something I learned the hard way. So we started the project in 2009 and our project is a little bit different, but I think it's actually, there's parallels with all kinds of grassroots archiving projects here. And, and so we started in 2009, but we didn't, I got a small grant to hire a digital archivist in 2013. And that is when we realized, um, and also we got our platform, uh, which is called Clouder in 2013. I realized in 2013 that I had been not keeping good track of these items. And I think the biggest challenge when you start collecting archival objects and digitizing is keeping track of them and being able to tag them and, you know, sort of like have a kind of global sense, like only with metadata can you really understand like 
what your archive, how, how it's speaking, right? Otherwise, it's just a collection of things. So saving stuff on Google Drive is just not functional, right? So um, one of the Couldn't things that we're like, <laughs> yeah, <"Gold." Coffee. laughs> yeah. yeah. But the problem is, of course, like um, digital archive, like so archiving platforms that are open source, I would think of Omeka and Drupal, you know, as the main ones are extremely difficult to use, like to actually set up. And so they're really, they're beyond the sort of scope of most digital archiving projects. But this is one of the reasons why, like, uh, we use Clouder, which is almost like an Instagram interface, except it allows tagging and metadata, you know, so... um, that has really helped us, but figuring out an organizational uh, strategy for for making sense of all the things you collect, because I know probably for you guys, it's the same, but like after you hit 300 objects, you're, oh, it's hard to figure out what's what. And, you know, and that organizational structure is going to be key, you know, everything from nomenclature you're working with a digital archive like not letting your phone uh title your objects or however you're scanning them like having a very systematized um nomenclature approach you know like things like uh having a spreadsheet it's so unbelievably boring i know but no no we need to hear this your life (laughs) and then of course you know like so having objects we always, when we scan, we have like each type of object has its own titling, you know, nomenclature uh, and a whole system around that, but also like setting up a system for keeping your metadata and your objects organized on the spreadsheet and always, you know, moving metadata from the spreadsheet to whatever platform you're using to share the materials with the public. But it's just like having all of that, a workflow and a very systematic way of organizing your objects is the most important thing you can do from the start. And it's a hard lesson that I learned in 2013 because we had to go back and do that for like 4,000 objects. And, you know, when we were going back, it's like our naming conventions were all over the map, right? And so when you have like take a bunch of pictures or scans with your phone and your phone is making it, you know, one jpeg two jpeg three jpeg right and you're doing that like 16 times at 16 different sites and they all have the same title you're in trouble right so these are like the kinds of hard lessons that i learned like just being very systematic from the beginning um and that will help you organize your things and also of course you know redundancy is is key here so having hard drives having it up in the cloud not having it just on your laptop, which can get stolen. You know, I mean, these are all like, because these objects, it's the thing is, this may be the only place they exist for the future, mm. right? They're they're ephemeral, essentially, right? So um, just, you know, building in redundancy, building in organizational structures. And then once those structures are in place, really the world is your oyster because then you can do all kinds of fun things. Like I can go into our archive of 10,000 objects and type in a keyword and pull things from across 150 collections, you know, that, you know, I can put together in interesting ways. Right. So, so that's what, that's the power of the digital and, and organizing things right on digital platforms. Um, and, and my dream is really like, I would like to have enough money (laughs) to create a resource on a secure server for all of these community archives. Um, We've already created a a little mini handbook that we share with people on digital archiving, you know, syllabi to encourage people to teach locally on the grassroots level, you know, um, resources to share. Uh, And so I think really kind of, my approach has always been collaborative with the project itself, but also extending our knowledges into projects like yours or projects like Alan's over in uh, Austin or, you know, all of these amazing projects. Like uh, I would love someday to have a single repository where they could safely, you know, store for posterity their the incredible work they've been doing. You know, I don't want it to go away if Instagram goes away. 
Yeah, you know? that's that's super important. I mean, I th- we would also <laughs> love yeah. that, like a mutual goal for sure. And like, I mean, I think that we're also at a juncture of figuring out. I mean, we do store everything on Google Drive. Whoops, but um, and on our computers, <laughs> of course. Yeah, it, it, it's but but good. it's not I mean, enough. It, like right. even the even the like organizational capacities of Google Drive, I find. Yeah, like it doesn't have enough bells and whistles for the kind of searchability and the kind of um, system like categorization that we need. So it's I mean, I'll probably be following up with you about about what you're using so we can maybe think about that. Yeah. And the handbook. (laughs) But um, I mean, I feel like you have gone above and beyond answering and sharing this like incredible knowledge with us. I feel like we're both a little bit like stunned right now. Like, like starstruck. We do everything. Yeah. Um, but thank you so, so, so much for your time and your knowledge and just making this possible. This is like truly an honor for us. Me too. Let's keep it going. Yes, yeah, let's, let's please. Definitely keep so, in touch. yeah, for all for, for all listeners, this is um, this is the Top Rank Podcast at Rebel Studios with Hassan. Our guest is Maria Cotera. You can follow us on Instagram at Top Rank Podcast. Yep. And thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you. Bye. Right. Thank you. Send me in my heart of that. Send me in my heart of that.